Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This episode comes to you from the iconic Abbey Road Studios in London, where I had the honour of interviewing Merrick Stiles. Who's he? Well, he's the head of audio products at Abbey Road, who started out at the studios as a recording engineer, working on the likes of film scores like Lord of the Rings. He's something of an authority when it comes to exploring their film music archive. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Scala Radio, where every Saturday from one you can listen to my show about film music, in which I get to talk about movie scores of all kinds, and you can hear an eclectic mix of extraordinary film music. So, Merrick, firstly, tell me where we are. We are at Abbey Road Studios in St John's Wood in London. And where particularly in Abbey Road are we? We're in the mixed stage. The um, the Dolby accredited mix stage, Dolby Atmos accredited mix stage, is where um, the soundtrack for a, for a film is, is put together. The final stages, so you've got the music, the dialogue, and the sound effects. They all come together, and you create the print master that goes out to the cinemas. And tell me what your job is and what that entails. My job here at Abbey Road currently is I'm known as the head of audio products, and what that means is I work with developers to create software that's based on some of our intellectual historic recording property uh, and the acoustics of our rooms so so music production software but I used to work in the studios as a recording engineer probably about 15 years ago now okay so the history of Abbey Road is of course extraordinary we're now 90 years on from its uh, inception tell me how Abbey Road first came about and why it was significant when it came about well the Gramophone Company, which was the first record label here in the UK, started in 1908 in a, uh, a small kind of complex in Covent Garden next door to Rules Restaurant, I think it was. <laughs> and uh, a few years later, they, they'd started to build the, this massive complex over in, in Hayes in, in West London because it, it kind of just took off, this, this kind of industry. It's still very new, but it was growing and growing. Yeah. And um, they were recording in any spaces they could find, whether that be church halls, town halls, um, even in the offices in Hayes or, or the factories in Hayes. They had this very small makeshift studio. But the idea of a purpose-built recording complex just didn't exist. Right. And I think it was just getting out of hand. They were using the Queen's Hall, which doesn't exist anymore, in, in Oxford Street. And they um, they were just like, you know, we're... Getting more and more demand to do more and more recordings, and we can't get the space. 
So uh, there was there was a, a manager who worked for the gramophone company at the time, a guy called Trevor Osmond Williams, and he was like, let's let's just build a facility, which everyone thought he was mad, absolutely mad. Like, why would you do that? This, what we've got works. It's not perfect, but it works. No one's done it before, all that sort of stuff. But he convinced the gramophone company, the board of directors, that we needed to do this. Um, so he started scouting around for a place to do it, and he found number three Abbey Road, which at the time was a three-story um, townhouse. Right. But what it, what happened was it, it, it came with this huge plot of land in the back, the gardens to the house, and the house next door was for sale with their garden. So they, they bought the house and built the studios, the complex, in, in, in the grounds, the original grounds of the building. So that's why Abbey Road looks a bit weird. It looks like a house from the outside because it was. Yeah. And you walk through those doors and everything beyond reception was the original grounds of the house, the gardens and all that sort of stuff. So... Um, they built it from from the ground up. I think they built they bought the house in 1928, and they were open by 1931. The tragic thing is, is that uh, Trevor Osmond Williams uh, died at the age of 40 of a, of a brain tumor in 1930. So he never actually got to see his his realization come to fruition, which is tragic, I think. Wow. Now you showed me a photograph of one of the first recording sessions in the studio, and you said what was remarkable about it is that the orchestra were all huddled together. So why would that have been the case back then? If you had a big space, why would you huddle the orchestra like that? They were trying to recreate a concert hall. That's that's what people associate music with, a concert hall. So the audience are all sat down on the floor. There's a stage at the back and the uh, orchestra are all sort of crowded on the stage. And that's what they're trying to recreate because that's what they knew, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I think they quickly learnt that you know that's not going to work and the staging went eventually and they decided to use the whole of the floor because it makes sense to do that but it, th- this was like the early days of, of recording um no one had built a recording studio before purpose-built recording studio um it actually inspired other labels to sort of follow suit it was like it really was quite an innovative kind of bold move if you like now just before we started talking we quickly walked round and we saw three studios. Studio One, which is, you know, enormous. Studio Two, which has all the Beatles history. Studio Three, which, as you pointed out, is where uh, Pink Floyd recorded Wish You Were Here, although it's very different now. Um, the differences between a fairly small uh, recording room and that huge uh, Studio One. What is the difference between recording in a small space and a great big cavernous space? It's, it's the overall sound at the end of the day. So generally speaking, a bigger space is going to have a larger reverb time, which is great for certain types of music, i.e. choral, orchestral, uh, solo pianos, that sort of thing. If you put a band in there, like a rock and roll band, it can sound quite mushy quite quickly. Right. Because the sound's just bouncing around all over the place. So um, so smaller rooms tend to be... like Studio 2 is kind of the perfect one in the middle. It's not too big, not too small. That's why Studio 2 is great for both recording smaller orchestras and for recording rock and roll bands. It kind of does a bit of both. Um, Whereas Studio 3, I mean, you would do smaller string sessions in Studio 3, smaller string sections, but that's kind of a perfect band-sized room. So really it comes down to sound, the sound you're trying to get. It's it's about the reverbs and the acoustics. And when you say the reverb, what you mean is the way in which the sound continues to ring after it has left the instrument, right? Yes. So if you went down to Studio 1, if you clap your hand... It's got a 2.3 second reverb time. So basically, after that clap stopped, the tail was going to be about 2.3 seconds after, which doesn't sound like a huge amount, but it is in terms of when you're actually hearing that. Yeah. So what's Abbey Road's history with soundtrack recordings? When does that really begin? If you asked me about two months ago, I would have said 1981. 
and I will go into that. Yep. But, re- <laughs> but, but recently, um, we found in the archives a recording sheet that was just simply uh, titled uh, Mia Farrow, Rosemary's Baby, in Studio 2, 1968. And what it was, it was that the opening, really creepy la, opening la, piece. La, la. Exactly. Yeah, that was done in Studio 2, and I had no idea that one, we ever did films before 1981, and, and, and what a interesting film to be done in studio wow. too um so and um, with john barry as well john barry did a few bits and pieces here but but this w- wouldn't have been done to picture so if you think of um certainly a film recording session today but most traditional film recording sessions even going back to the early days of, of film you would have some sort of picture playback yeah in the room none of that existed here at abbey road until 1981 so 1981 is when f- film i would say started proper and the reason that came about was Studio One, the room we went into, massive big orchestral room uh, built for classical music. The repertoire by the mid-70s had kind of pretty much all been recorded and there wasn't a huge amount of new re- repertoire coming through. And that whole CD digital thing hadn't happened where they basically came back and re-recorded everything yeah. anyway. Yeah. So there was this lull in the middle and that room just wasn't being used. It was being used for games of badminton, five-a-side football, and Seriously. it just wasn't being used, apart from things it probably shouldn't be used for. <laughs> and, you know, the suits at EMI were like, you know, what is going on? You know, why are the numbers so low and all that sort of stuff? So, I mean, Ken Townsend, the studio manager at the time, was under huge amounts of pressure, and he knew he had to do something about it. And one of the plans that was drawn up, and if this had happened, I don't think we'd be sat here right now, they were going to divide Studio One up into two smaller pot rooms right. uh, with underground car parking facilities. Because <laughs> you've seen the car park, right? It's tiny. No one can park. So it's like, we need a car park. And pop studios were like king at the time. London was full of them. And the trend for sound at that time was that very dry up front kind of Fleetwood Mac kind of yeah. rumours sort of sound. You don't need a big space for that. So it was like, yeah, let's carve up Studio One and turn it into pop studios, which Ken was not happy about. And, you know, it's a historic room. It's a great sounding room, we, yeah. you know. And by complete stroke of luck, there was a, there used to be a film um, studio over in Denham, Denham Film Studios, which had been around since the 30s, where they did um, Brief Encounter and Great Expectations and stuff like that. And um, there was a, a sound department over in Denham called Anvil, which was headed up by uh, legendary film engineer Eric Tomlinson. Yeah. Anyway, the lease was up on their building. Um, this was around about 1980. I mean, they hadn't shot a film there for donkey's years. And it was slowly being knocked down bit by bit. But they managed to hold on to the bitter end, Anvil, until they were literally told, you've got to get out of it. You're out, basically, with turning it into a shopping centre or whatever. Yeah. Um, so Eric was just, like, looking around, like, where can we find a place to, you know, carry on doing like, Very successful business. They did, Eric recorded Alien, Superman, the first Star Wars, um, The Omen, you know, he was the guy, and, and this was a, his business. He had a background in aeronautics, right? He worked for yes, Ferry Aviation. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A very interesting guy. Um, so it was him and his assistant, Alan Snelling, and they had no home anymore. And I don't know who approached who, but Ken, Alan, and Eric got together, and they said, like, we can, we can do this. We can do a joint venture in Studio One. We've got the space, we've got the microphones, you bring the projection equipment, bring the clients... And, and let's do this. So um, they started um, Anvil Abbey Road Screen Sound, it was called, in 1981. Uh, the first film was um, Miklos Rossa film, Eye of the Needle. Yeah. There's a question about whether it was that or whether Lion was actually before. They were around about the same time, right? Yeah, so um, what's it called? The Lion in the Desert. Lion in the, Lion Lion in the, the Desert. desert. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I, 
there was a question mark as to which film was first. I think what they may have done is they may have started Lion at Anvil and then just done some overdubs here and mixed it right. here. But the first actual beginning to end score done here was Miklos Rosa. I mean, yeah. what a fantastic start. Um, yeah. You know, legend. Um, so that was that, that's how it came about. And then a couple of films after that was Alex North's Dragon Slayer, uh, Michael Kamen's Venom, and then the fourth film to be done here was um, a little ditty called Raiders of the Lost Ark. So tell us about that, because, I mean, obviously, this is this is the kind of a milestone in Abbey Road's history. Why was that score here for, in the first place, and what's important about it? I think the reason the score came here would have been because of the relationship that John Williams had with Eric Tomlinson, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. So this was the early days of, of film scoring for Abbey Road, obviously, so we're still trying to prove ourselves. I'm pretty sure John Williams would have been familiar with the acoustics of Studio One anyway, and obviously knew the London musicians, because yeah. they would have gone over to Anvil. So I'm pretty sure John would have known he was in a safe pair of hands. But yeah, that's that's how it came about. It was, you know, it was a, f- a film that John wanted to work on with Eric, and Eric said, well, I'm now here at Abbey Road, and... That's how it happened. Can you explain, you know, you've talked a lot about Eric Tomlinson. Can you explain what the relationship would be like if you were actually in the studio recording that? What would the relationship between the conductor, the composer, the engineer be? How would it describe for us what an actual session like that would be like? A session, well, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, for a start, it would have been a very cramped session. So it was the early days of scoring Abbey Road, and Abbey Road wasn't set up to do film scoring. So it was kind of shoehorned in, if you like. So the control room for um, Studio One at the time was side orientated from the recording space. So what I mean by that is the speakers would be facing one way and the window looking out to the musicians would be facing the other way. And and that's kind of where um, where the film would be projected on the back of the room. So I think it was quite frustrating for a Hollywood director or composer who was used to the big scoring stages in the States to yeah, come yeah. into Studio One. I mean, I think <laughs> I think Steven Spielberg famously, well, not famously said, but I heard he said that he was stood in Studio One. He was like, well, which direction do you want me to face, the speakers or the screen? You know, you couldn't do both. So I guess it must have been frustrating. So I guess from Eric's point of view, maybe those early days were kind of frustrating because he'd come from Anvil, which was a purpose-built recording facility. But anyway, his job at the end of the day was to capture uh, the orchestra, or whatever it is recording, with the cinema in mind. He would use this bespoke microphone techniques to kind of fill the theatre and create that exciting widescreen kind of sound, which he became very famous for. And his job was to technically capture what the composer's intent was and and also appease what the director's intent was kind of kind of a go-between i suppose and you said that that score is classic tomlinson the way when you listen to it you can hear eric tomlinson's influence on it yeah i i generally think that is a, a landmark kind of recording if you like that i'm pretty sure to this day most scoring engineers listen back to and use it as a reference point it just sounds fantastic So, 1982, Jerry Goldsmith does First Blood, and at the point that he does it, it's the sixth thing that he's done in 1982. Yeah, he was in demand. So, (laughs) describe for me Jerry Goldsmith's process, because the output is extraordinary, and when you look at how how much he created in that, you know, a comparatively brief period of time, what was he, what was he like as a conductor and composer? I mean, if, say if we compare um, Raiders of the Lost Ark with uh, First Blood, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark is, they're both orchestral scores, yep. 
But Raiders of the Lost Ark is very traditional from the point of view. It's the orchestra. Everything's being played live. Very little overdubs from from what I knew about what, yeah. how John, John Williams worked. Whereas Jerry, he would like to use synthesizers as well. So he would obviously have traditional orchestral arrangements and, and sounds, but he would blend in orchestras, uh, sorry, synthesizers underneath and kind of get a slightly different texture. So if you listen to maybe the soundtrack to, to First Blood, the kind of piano riff, yeah. it's, it's quite obviously a piano, but there's a synth mixed in underneath and it makes it sound very distinctive and you can't quite put your finger on what it exactly is. And that's the point, I guess, is to kind of give you that kind of uh, otherworldly experience or sound, I suppose. Do you have a favourite Jerry Goldsmith score? I like First Blood. I think it's a great score. I mean... Alien, probably, I would say, because <laughs> it just is. It's a brilliant score. Okay. Which, um, tragically, I don't think a lot of it was actually used in the final film. No. That was a kind of one of those spotting kind of um, temp score issues where the director falls in love with the temp score and doesn't end up using... Yes, described as not a happy experience. We'll talk about aliens in a little bit. Yeah, so, of unhappy experiences. Yeah. So 83 is Return of the Jedi. The first two Star Wars movies aren't recorded here. Is that right? No. There was a bit of toing and froing and conflicting recollections of, of if Empire was done here. Empire Strikes Back. But yeah. We're pretty sure it didn't. It was Anvil. Yeah, maybe they did a few bits and pieces here. And finished it off here. That same same thing with um, with Lion. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that they're all done at Anvil. Uh, so the first Star Wars film done here was Return of the Jedi, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you go on to like Spotify, for example, and just just play that opening cue from New Hope, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and uh, Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi does actually sound sonically quite different. It sounds a bit more widescreen, a bit lusher. Nothing against the Anvil sound, but no, no, I mean, sure. the, the scoring stage at Anvil, I imagine, was a very different beast to what you got down in Studio One. Because we can obviously play these to put them together to kind of experience that. What are we listening for that's different in the Jedi sound? It's like New Hope, that opening of New Hope versus the opening of Jedi. Um, I would say um, New Hope just sounds smaller, doesn't sound quite as widescreen, quite as lush, if that kind of makes sense. Whereas. Yeah. Whereas um, Return of the Jedi, it's you, you hear that opening kind of chord. It's just like um, I actually I, wit- I witnessed that a couple of years ago. We were doing a test recording for for a game, uh, one of the Star Wars games, and we asked the LSO. It was the LSO to play. You know, do you mind just playing the the Star Wars theme tune for us? And I was stood behind the conductor, and I kind of wasn't ready for the moment. I don't know what I was doing. I was maybe adjusting something, and it just. Bam! And I was just—I was literally like blown back, like the, the the air was rushing past my hair. And when they finished, even members of the orchestra had a bit of a smirk on their face. Right, let's put Mirek's theory to the test. Here's the opening of the first Star Wars film, Episode Four: A New Hope. And here's the third film, Return of the Jedi. I think he makes a good point. And then the prequels were recorded here, I presume? Yeah, I think all but one. So the the, the three prequels in around the 90s, yeah, yeah sorry, they, they were done here. And then some of the spin-offs and some of the newer films, I think a lot of them were done here, maybe apart from one. But yeah, all the prequels were done here, yeah. I mean, I wonder what it must have been like coming back to the Star Wars theme, you know, because 
having we all grew up with that with that you know oh yes the idea that oh it's you know four five and six is it oh apparently it is and i remember going to america especially to see phantom menace i mean i wonder what it must have been like coming back to the star wars themes after all that time i mean even members of it's certain members of the orchestra were on those Phantom Menace sessions were on the original Star Wars wow. session like uh, Morris Murphy the tr- uh, trumpet player um, he was on those sessions so I think for everyone involved or for a, f- a few people involved there was a lot of memories going back to the very beginning and like wow we're back again we're doing this again uh, and it was a massive deal here at the studios when it came in I mean there was such a buzz around that film anyway like it was so secretive and um, the security was crazy uh, quite rightly so, I suppose. Um, you know, if you weren't actually directly involved in that session, you weren't allowed to go anywhere near Studio One. And they wow. hired, they hired security guards. And I remember at the end of the sessions, one of the technical engineers that literally had to get a, a saw and was sawing the videotapes in half, <laughs> and then bulk erasing them and then sending them back to prove that you know they were destroyed. Basically, it was like proper kind of secret squirrel sort of stuff. Which is also particularly extraordinary because I've talked to journalists who worked on the first Star Wars film who said you wander on an offset. I mean, everyone just thought it was like a little you know it was a Buck Rogers thing and nobody thought it was such a big deal. So that whole change from what happened from Star Wars to Phantom Menace is extraordinary. But there must have been a feeling of it coming home. I mean, to be back in Abbey Road. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, Abbey Road, you know, Studio One, the LSO, John Williams is back. And, and also, it's the way John Williams works, you know, it's like it's everything in the room at the same time. No overdubs. No, hardly any overdubs. You've got a full orchestra, like probably like an 80-piece orchestra, say. And then you've probably got a 60-piece choir at the back of the room. And you've got a, a lot of bodies in that room. And then you've got the music editors and, and the engineers and the runners and the assistant engineer. You know, seriously busy session going on there. Um, it must have been like, a, you know, well, speaking to the people who did a work on it, um, you know, it was a buzz. It was a huge buzz. Now, one of my favourite films and certainly one of my favourite soundtracks of all time is uh, the soundtrack to Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film. And one reason I love it so much is I think that the, the album stands up completely on its own. It mm, has a kind of, yeah. because it has a unifying theme all the way through it. Um, tell us what was different about Abbey Road by the time Michael Kamen got to come and do Brazil here. I spoke earlier on about the dodgy control room, as it were. Yeah, um, sideways on, you sideways on. look in the same place. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think there were a lot of stern letters written from clients, as it were, saying, you guys will get your act together a bit, you know, if you want us to carry on coming to Abbey Road. You know, I mean, obviously now it's a state-of-the-art film scoring facility, but back then, like I said, we were still finding our feet with it. Anyway, eventually something was done, and that's what they, they basically tore that control room out and built this brand-new control room, state-of-the-art, bigger mix and console. I mean... The, the recording console they used to record Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example, and Return of the Jedi, was pretty much a hand-me-down from the Beatles recording desk. You know? <laughs> it was the TG Mark III, whereas the TG Mark I was used to record Abbey Road. It wasn't designed to do film music. It just wasn't. So anyway, so Michael Kamen, um, that, yeah, that was the first session with the brand new control room. I think the trend then was to use a video playback instead of big projection. Okay. So it's a, it's a bit more leaner sort of operation, if you know what I mean, sort of a bit smaller and, you know, there wasn't 35 mil projection going on and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, I mean, God, I think that was like kind of 80s excess, if you like. I think Michael Kamen was here for about 13 weeks doing that score and used pretty much every studio here. Uh, I mean, I think he worked on the score for like six months yeah. with uh, with Ray, Ray Cooper um, because I think Terry Gilliam asked Michael Kamen to 
base the entire score on an old Brazilian song, Aqualera do Brazil. Yeah, which is an absolutely beautiful song. Yeah. About somebody, the memories drifting back to them on a hot summer night, which of course is the central theme of Gilliam's Brazil, which is that in the end your mind will take you somewhere else. Yeah, but imagine someone saying, can you, imp- can you, can you base your entire <laughs> score on this, please? I mean, what a task! And I think, I mean, I think Michael Kamen was so concerned about the publishing rights that he pu- he hired specialists to listen to all the cues he'd written to sort of try and work it out and see what who who's owed what with. And I think he was pleasantly surprised that they they said we're actually we can't really see a huge amount of resemblance. I mean, but he still managed to capture the essence of it. I mean, what a what skill that is to be able to do that. Um, but yes, yeah, six months of working on that, and then. Th- 13 weeks in here. I mean, I would love to have been in those sessions. Though. I mean, Terry Gilliam, uh, Ray Cooper and, and Michael Kamen. I mean, wow, that must have been amazing. You say 13 weeks as a really lengthy session. How long would a session usually be for recording an orchestral score for a film? I mean, it varies considerably. But for example, I think uh, Return of the Jedi, they were here for 10 days. I mean, yeah, a week is probably normal. Okay, so 13 weeks is insanely long. Absolutely, but it was the 80s, you know, I guess yeah. kind of what happened back then, I suppose. Also, I, I would say that that album still holds up. Oh. If you listen to it, it sounds like something somebody may have taken 13 weeks, but hey, it's brilliant. It's brilliant film, brilliant soundtrack, very creative from, from both sides, obviously visually, but also in terms of the music. I mean, Mark Ken was using all sorts, like kazoos and, and using typewriters as percussion and all, just really creative yeah. scoring, just... Yeah, it's, it's still, and like I say, it still stands up. It sounds great. Was there any sense? Because I mean, obviously, one of the things that the Beatles were doing was, you know, to experiment with sounds. And I mean, I just have this idea of Michael came in there going, you know, dun 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 dun. That it's a kind of similar, well, let's try it and see what flies. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that goes on. You can't help yourself. Once you're in that, I think once you're in that, if you've got the time, this this is the thing, I suppose. I mean, traditionally, film scoring sessions, you're kind of, you're up against it in terms of you've got an, you've got an orchestra out there in the room, which is not cheap, you know. yeah. yeah. And you've got a certain amount of time to get all this music down. And, um, you know, sometimes you, you get the impression, you know, the clock is ticking. We're running out of time here and, and we've got to get this done. So, unfortunately, most film scores, you're not going to get a chance to experiment much here in yeah. the studio when you've got an orchestra sat out in the room because that is not the time to do it. Having said that, obviously, scores have always been very experimenta- You know, lots of experimentation goes on in scores traditionally. Yeah. But you wouldn't necessarily do that here unless it's something out of the ordinary like Michael Kamen spending 13 weeks here. Then, <laughs> then you've got some time to do that, I suppose. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
for Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, we mentioned Alien, and I said, look, we'll talk about Aliens. Yeah. The the story is that the Aliens score recording was tough. Tell me why it was tough. Again, like how, how much time do you have to record a score, right? <laughs> I don't think James Horner had much time at all for that project. The story goes was he, he turned up to the UK expecting to have a locked picture, or more or less a locked picture, yeah. and he gave himself six weeks to write the score, which is a perfectly reasonable amount of time for a composer to write a score. And when he turned up, not only had they not edited the film, they were still shooting the film. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of stories about what went wrong. And um, I think James Cameron was just kind of used to a more guerrilla style of filmmaking you know, off the back of Terminator and turned up to Pinewood Studios and it was like very unionized and whatnot. And he was getting frustrated that there were all these tea breaks going on and elaborate long lunches in the pub and all that sort of stuff. And he was, it just fell behind. There was problems with some of the cast, I think, and the director of photography wasn't lighting things the way he wanted. So it all basically fell apart. And when he, when he sacked the director of photography, I think, there was mutiny on, on the set. And I think he had to actually screen Terminator to the crew because it hadn't been released here yet to prove his credentials. It's like, look, I can make a film. <laughs> Um, anyway, they got it all resolved, but by the time they did all that, they were like weeks, weeks behind. So, so James Horner turned up and, and he went to the editing rooms and there were just bins of film everywhere. There was nothing for him to work to. He said it was a nightmare. I mean, obviously he could write themes and melodies, but he mm. couldn't lock anything. He couldn't structure anything because there was nothing to work with. So this went on and on and on. And they, they booked the dates in Studio One and his job was just to make sure that those musicians had some music to play. You know, I think by the time the sessions came around, what they were recording just wasn't working to the picture they were seeing. So uh, they got it done. They recorded it. And in the dub, they, you know, edited it and truncated it and, and did what they had to do to make it work. I think they even took some music from the original Alien to fill in bits and pieces and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it was still a, nominated for a, an Oscar and it's still a fantastic, amazing yeah, film. Yeah. Great score. So I guess it's just goes to show, you know, no matter how wrong things seem to be going, you can still create this amazing piece of art at the end of it. When you talk about them playing to picture and the thing not matching the picture, just explain this for us. Obviously, originally, pictures would be projected. Once you start to get with uh, video playback, do you have a timeline on the video that tells you where you are in the scene to hit certain beats? How does that work? Yeah, there's, there's a system, they call it a streaming device. So... Yeah, the conductor or, or the, if the composer's conducting will be out in the room on the podium with the music in, in front and then a, a screen as well. And as the the scene is being played out, you, you'll get these streamers. So it's a line that, that goes across the screen and it's just it's just to remind everyone there's there's an extenuating point coming up and we've got to hit it. Yeah, it's just it's just another tool you have to kind of help guide you through the recording process. But there's you know, music, musicians will have a click track as well. Everything's done to clicks. So there's yeah. like a, there's a metronome going. So so everything's obviously locked to the action on the screen. So when a, I don't know, when a monster jumps out or whatever, you know, there's there's a piece of music that that extenuates that and and all that sort of stuff. So, so are all film scores recorded to click track pretty much now? Yeah, they are now. Traditionally, I guess not. If you think of films in the <laughs> 30s, 40s, 50s, or even you know even up to the 60s or 70s, they just they just got on with it. 
uh, I think they'd, they would use uh, stopwatches actually in the early days. That's, yeah. how they, that's how they get around it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Braveheart, which is you know Mel Gibson's film, which went on to uh, win the Oscar for Best Picture. Uh, when they were recording the Braveheart score here, the story is that the Beatles were in overseeing anthology, I suppose, was yeah. it? Yeah. And that they were asked if they wanted to go and meet the director. Do you want to fill in the rest of this story? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think those sessions were pretty full on. Again, big orchestra. James Warner loved to have 35mm projection. or, or, or at least oh, fine, a, so he wasn't or, using video? No, or, or at least a video projector. He okay. liked to have projection up on the room. Right. You know, it completely changes the mood and the atmosphere when you kind of got a big screen 35mm projection, if you like, on the back of the room and the orchestra's playing to it. It's an amazing experience. And presumably you then have to darken the orchestra. Yeah, and... you, you sort of bring the lights down. There's little, you know, Each of the musicians got little lamps over their music. Uh, anyway, so and then there was... Um, Ian Underwood was doing the synths for that score, I think, um, who was Frank Zappa's keyboard player. So yeah. the room was just full of synthesizers. It was just a <laughs> chaos. I've seen pictures of this, of this control. It's just chaos, basically. <laughs> Absolute chaos. You've got Mel Gibson as the director, you know. I mean, and then in the monks... The famously all... low-played and easy-to-manage Mel Gibson. Absolutely, absolutely. And then in, in the middle of all that, then the Beatles walk into the control room. <laughs> and everyone was just like, what the hell? You know, they're probably in the middle of recording a cue. I mean, only the Beatles could stop a cue being recorded by an orchestra. You know, the, the clock's ticking, you know, this orchestra's costing a fortune. But the Beatles are here, okay, we'll stop now. And uh, I think they, they looked around and said hello to Mel and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, as they were leaving, Ringo Starr said, I thought we were going to meet Mel Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice cheeky one there, I like it. What do you think it is about the Braveheart score that the set, what, why is the sound of the Braveheart score different? I mean, I remember, I, I'm not a huge fan of the film, but I think the music is fantastic. The soundtrack is epic, let's, let's say. Um, and is it because it has everything and the kitchen sink, or what is it that makes it special? Um, you can't, yeah, so you've got traditional orchestral elements, uh, choirs, but also a lot of more traditional kind of old old medieval sounding flutes and um, just kind of unusual sounding instruments that you weren't used to hearing in most film scores. I think that's what it was. I think that stemmed from originally they were going to try and do like a medieval sounding score entirely. And uh, I think both uh, Mel Gibson and James Horner quickly worked out that that would sound pretty horrendous. <laughs> you know, it can sound quite harsh, right, I suppose, if you had just purely those instruments so so w what they did was they had traditional orchestral and, and choirs and all that sort of stuff and then blended some of those instruments in and so it's like more of a solo uh, but not in, in its entirety so yeah, it's yeah. still pleasant to listen to i'd forgotten how epic it was but i'd also forgotten how much that kind of you know old world new world that those two things are and actually i think it's the it's the thing that makes the film interesting is that the score has an old world new world thing about it which sometimes the film itself doesn't have the film just has the anachronistic haircut and you wonder why mel gibson looks like that but the score almost makes sense of all those warring elements in the film it is a brilliant score it is the best thing about the film I mean, they recorded a lot of material, I think, because they released two albums out of it. Like, yes, there was more music from more Braveheart. More music from Braveheart, because they recorded so much. And it's not like it was a short film in the first exactly, place. Exactly, yeah. So they must have been pretty full-on sessions, I imagine. So let's talk a little bit about Stanley Kubrick. Jocelyn Pook's uh, first film score was for Kubrick after Kubrick heard a piece of music that he was interested in. What do you know about uh, Eyes Wide Shut? And the reason I ask you what do you know is because everything surrounding Kubrick is shrouded in utter secrecy. I mean, you talk about the secrecy of the Star Wars movies. Nothing would match the secrecy of any Kubrick project. So 
what can you tell us about Eyes Wide Shut? So, yeah, Jocelyn Pook did about 30 minutes worth of music here for that film, which unfortunately was, you know, turned out to be his last film. And that came about because they were rehearsing the masked ball scene, I think, and the choreographer had all sorts of music playing to sort of try out, and, and Jocelyn Pook's Backward Priests yeah. came on. Which, which is which is really demonic sounding. God, yeah. It's, it's like a kind of invocation <laughs> of some unholy spirit. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really interesting piece. And Stanley Kubrick was like, what is this? I want more of it. Who made it? You know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, find me this composer, as it were. <laughs> and, uh, and it was Jocelyn Pook. And Jocelyn Pook got a phone call from Stanley Kubrick's people saying, Stanley would like to hear more of your music. Completely out of the blue, apparently. I mean, I don't think Justin Pooh had worked on any film music no. ever. So imagine that, probably in her early 20s, suddenly being asked to, well, one, provide music for Stanley Kubrick, like the Stanley Kubrick. And then and then the next day, she went to go and meet him and Stanley gave her the gig, like to, you know, can you please record some more music to my film, as it were. So came down here to Abbey Road with a, I think it was a really small ensemble, like maybe like sort of eight or so musicians. Yeah. And um, Stanley wasn't here. From what I can tell, Stanley wasn't here. He just let her get on with it. And um, came up with this, you know, 30 minutes of music. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was used in the film. And, and uh, I mean, yeah, I, I just can't imagine being in that position where you're suddenly asked to do something you'd never done before with probably the most famous uh, director in the world with a film with A-list couple, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. It's just like, what? What a, what a huge thing to be asked to do, and um, and, and and absolutely nailing it as well. I mean, I, th- I think she did a fantastic job. It's a, um, they recorded strings over the backward priests here at Abbey Road, and just watching that scene, uh, the music is just brilliant. This, I mean, the scene's very interesting, obviously yeah. in its own right, but the music is brilliant, and it's it's one of those pieces of film music which I think is just just very memorable and very interesting, and I I, I love it. I, I listen to it. And I think it's brilliant. It's interesting that you think that Kubrick didn't come to the session because, I mean, obviously, you know, Kubrick is famously reclusive. And one of the stories about Kubrick is you wouldn't know if he was there anyway because he used to famously go and hang out in Ryman's in St Albans and nobody had any idea that he was Stanley Kubrick. Excellent. So are you convinced that he wasn't there? No, I'm not. Maybe he was there, just sat in the back of the room, (laughs) keeping an eye on things. So tell me about, uh, let's talk about Harry Potter, because Harry Potter is, you know, such a big part of everybody's sort of film conscious. How does Harry Potter connect with Abbey Road? Every film apart from the first two was recorded here at Abbey Road. So John Williams scored the first three films and he did the third one here. I mean, I don't know why exactly he didn't do the first two here. He did them in London. I think he recorded them at Air Studios, yeah. which is a fantastic studio. Yeah. Lots of composers who love using Air um, will come sometimes come to Abbey Road and vice versa if they can't get into one or the other. All that sort of stuff goes on. Um, so, you know, they're good friends. Um, anyway, so the first two films weren't done here and the, the third film was. I mean, it, it's just an inter- a very interesting series, I think, from the point of view that trying to keep 
any sort of consistency through our eight films with multiple directors and multiple composers is going to be pretty much a nigh on impossible task. But I think I think it's really interesting that the, the third film, which John Williams did compose, I don't know if it was his way of cleaning the slate, but he, he didn't use a lot of the motifs um, and themes that he created in the first two films. I don't know whether that was a direction for him or him himself saying, look, I'm not going to do the rest of the series. Maybe I'm just going to give everyone a clear slate here and, <laughs> and basically just not reuse what I've used in the past for the you know first two films. And because the other composers that went on to, to, to work on, on the series um, didn't. They all ha- added their own unique styles. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, if you listen to the very first film and then the, you know, John Williams, it's very John Williams and very big and orchestral and um, sort of lush strings and whatnot and and then you listen to the last couple of films of Alexandra Desplat and it's like it's a lot darker and moodier and um, it's definitely a progression throughout that series and it's quite interesting to sort of listen to that progression also I mean visually as well they've they changed a lot there's also an interesting thing that audiences grew up with the Harry Potter movies so the people who were watching the the sort of more light-hearted movies at the beginning by the time they get to Deathly Hallows and you know, Harry on Camping and all those kind of, you know, those really sort of dark movies, they've grown up with them. And I think there is there is an evolution of the films from the light to the dark, which is from being young to being older, which is, as you say, mirrored in the mirrored in the scores. Do you ever do the thing of sitting down and thinking, I'll just I'll just listen to a selection of Harry Potter's? I've never done that, actually, no. <laughs> I haven't seen all the films, to be totally honest. Um, I know, it's That's terrible. a terrible confession. Terrible, terrible. I've dotted around the... I've never listened to all the scores, but I have dotted around the scores just to hear the, the difference, you know, because I'm interested in how they progressed musically over the years and, and hearing that difference from kind of light to dark, if you like. Um, but no, I haven't actually sat down and watched all of them or listened to all of them back to back. Has anyone done that? I'm sure they have, actually, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure people have done that. So in terms... So if, you know, not sitting down and doing all the Harry Potters, would you ever sit down and do all the Lord of the Rings? Uh, I was forced to, because I, I worked on the Lord of the Rings yep. films. So, yeah, I... Um... So you literally did... Tell us about your involvement. Oh, uh, I did all three. Um, Lord of the Rings was kind of like our version of Apocalypse Now, I suppose. We had access to too much time, <laughs> too much money, and little by little we went insane. <laughs> Which is still the best quote ever made by a director about filmmaking. Heart of Darkness, great Absolutely. documentary. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of joking, but not. I mean, yeah, it was really interesting experience. I mean, amazing experience. I mean, I was um, I was the assistant mix engineer so my job was to assist the mix engineer and uh, capture the final mixes and deliver them down to New Zealand. We had this thing called the Fat Pipe setup, which in 2001 was mind-blowing that I could upload, drag a folder onto this server and they could just drag it off the other end in, down in New Zealand sort of thing. It took like about an hour. So would Peter be in New Zealand? So P- Peter Jackson was here for quite a big chunk of the recording, but just because of the nature of those films, I mean, he was always cutting the film. Always cutting the film. So... We mentioned earlier on with, you know, things like Aliens, for example, you know, it's a, a bit of a nightmare from a composer's point of view when you haven't got locked picture. I mean, quite often you get picture which is bound to move around a little bit. Um, but the, in this case, I think what what happened was was, was Howard Shaw uh, wanted to, to work on this film in a very traditional kind of way. So he would he would write the score, compose using pen and paper. Right. He would orchestrate it himself and he would conduct it himself. And the problem being i suppose was that peter jackson was always cutting the picture always cutting it so so howard would, would 
score to a, a version of this scene, go and record it, we would mix it, send it down to New Zealand, and then Peter Jackson would recut that scene or add completely new bits and pieces. So what Howard wanted to do was he wanted to rescore to that and re-record to that and then we remix it. So we go around in this circle of, of picture gets cut, score gets recorded, score gets mixed, picture gets cut. This went round and round and round until the music executives at New Line Cinema said, we're print mastering this tomorrow. It's got to go out to the cinemas. That's it. You're done. And it just went round like that until it went round in circles until someone pulled the plug. Uh, that was the first film, and then obviously the first film was a massive success. So it just got worse for the second film. I mean, the second film I did eighty-seven days without a day off. It was just mammoth, absolutely mammoth. Um, but having said that, it was an amazing experience, a really positive experience most of the time. Um, you know, great team. I mean, Peter Jackson. The films were amazing. Howard Shaw. The, the music is stunning. The teams involved, you know, we all became friends, and um, it was a really, really amazing experience. I mean, I was, I was just super excited on the first film anyway because, like Peter Jackson, I was a fan of like Bad Taste and like yeah, yeah. you know Meet the Feebles and all that sort of stuff. I was like, Peter Jackson's doing the Lord of the Rings films, really? And but I mean, well, God, he nailed it. I mean, yeah. I interviewed Peter when uh, when Bad Taste was first out. It was a tiny little distributor called Blue Dolphin, and I've still got a tape of me interviewing him upstairs in a. a dingy little hotel and him saying you got to understand the secret to the movie is squelchy yogurt he said you get yogurt and you put it in your hands you go it gives you all the gore that you want and the idea that that guy then went on to make the biggest movie franchise of all time is still astonishing to me um i also had the great pleasure of interviewing howard shaw on stage at the edinburgh festival incredibly genial absolutely yeah describe him for me uh it's just a really kind of inspiring person to work with just his, I don't know, his writing, he was very like, I, I want to do this from a traditional point of view, and he had this vision. I think he was like treating it like this is going to be like an opera or something like that, you know, like he had this vision of what this wanted to be, and and just the, the kind of, the creative uh, kind of collaborations he did as well with, um, you know, like Emiliano Torini and um, Annie Lennox, and kind of, you know, it's it just went into all these different directions you didn't really necessarily expect it to, but it still just sounded like Lord of the Rings, it still just sounded like, this this Middle Earth world that he created musically. When you're in the process of mixing something of the magnitude of, I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong. I'm imagining that Lord of the Rings is a is a massive undertaking. How do you how do you approach? Is is that like is it worryingly large or is it you approach it the same way as you would approach anything else? I do remember like we had a, a pre meeting before the first film. Um, it was almost like the studio manager at the time and uh, music exec from Uline was basically sort of saying to us, warning us, like, this is going to be pretty full on, everyone. And I remember, like, walking out of the meeting and sort of one of those moments of, like, oh, my God, what, like, what am I getting myself in for here? Like, I just, yeah, I'd never experienced anything like it before. Like I say, like, most film jobs, you've been in and out in a week. Um, <laughs> unless it's Brazil. and Or unless it's Brazil, of course. Um <laughs> But so, so yeah, I do remember that kind of thing at the beginning of some people saying like, "This is going to be quite a beast. Be ready," sort of thing. Do you have a favourite moment from the Lord of the Rings score? I really love the end credits to the Two Towers, the Emiliano Torini track. Yeah. I think it's just beautiful. What just, do you love about it? Uh, the lyrics. Uh, I love Emiliano Torini's voice and the music. It just comes together beautifully, and still, when I listen to that piece of music, it kind of gives me that kind of hairs on the back of your 
heads sort of standing up, all that sort of stuff. It's, yeah. it's, it's a lush piece of music, yeah. When the time is getting on, I want to ask you a little bit about um, Black Panther. Tell us about the Black Panther sessions and why it is that Black Panther is a remarkable score. It's a very different sort of sounding score, I suppose, to what you would traditionally associate a superhero score. Kind of um, Ludwig Göransson was um, very, very adamant that he wanted to. He, he went over to Africa for like a, a few months and, and kind of wanted to absorb the kind of the music culture if you like the traditional music culture and i think you fell in love with like the drums and the talking drums and and that was used heavily in the score and it was it was one of those things where i normally you would kind of do an orchestral score and then add those elements on top whereas yeah. i think this was completely flipped over where he was at, almost adding the orchestra on top of the traditional african style instruments so and and the way he weaves them into each other um like the waterfall fight scene for example yeah, just, yeah. just starts off with these crazy drums and it's like it's really um engrossing and sort of drags you into this rhythmic pulse and then halfway through suddenly that the, the orchestra weaves in and it, i don't know i just think it's really sort of quite expertly crafted score really and just a very fresh sounding score if that makes sense and when you listen to that score can you hear that it's recorded at Abbey Road? Strings, yes. And and he, also the percussion as well, actually, on that waterfall scene, actually, when when you've got the talking drums and stuff playing, but every so often you'll get these, like, big bam-bams coming in. And it's that, you can hear that that, that Studio One, basically, percussion just, like, basically exploding in the room. Um, so, yeah, you, you do get that every so often, that you, you kind of hear a bit of that Studio One fingerprint. This is what we were talking about at the beginning about that, you know, two second, whatever it is, the, you know, the, the, for how long the sound lingers in the room. So you can hear that when you hear a piece of music that's recorded there still. I mean, the Pepsi challenge and all that, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a good test to do. But no, some, occasionally, you know, you do hear it, like things like Raiders, um, Return of the Jedi, um, you know, elements of, you know, more modern scores like Black Panther 1917, yeah. um, Gravity. No, you you can hear that Abbey Road sound. Well, let's talk about 1917. So 1917 is an extraordinary undertaking because the film is essentially, and it isn't, but it looks like it's one shot. Mm, yeah. So tell us about the, the different challenge of recording the score for a film, which is essentially one take. You know, most directors will use the editing process to set the, the pace of the of that scene, if you like, uh, whether it's going to be fast or slow. Whereas, whereas you didn't have that option in this film, there was no editing as such. So the the reliance was on the composer Thomas Newman to to kind of create um, that feeling of whether it needs to be like a, a faster paced feeling or a slower paced feeling, or you, the, that was the music. 
um, created the pulse, if you like. I mean, it does to a certain extent anyway, but there was there was no edits to help you yeah, yeah. get that experience. It was all completely down to the musical score. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, what an undertaking. I mean, obviously Sam Mendes had an undertaking himself with shooting it but in that style, but also from Thomas Newman's point of view, it's like, okay, I, I'm doing a score here and I'm I'm basically responsible for setting the entire pace of the film it, it, to, to a certain to a certain degree. How do composers compare, or composers and conductors compare working here, for example, with working in, you know, American studio recordings? Because you said at the beginning, um, you know, American studio recordings, big spaces before. Do you have, um, do people talk to you about the different experience of recording here at Abbey Road? I mean, look, there's loads of great studios around the world, loads of great scoring stages around the world. But, but Abbey Road's unique, I guess. The, the experience is unique from the point of view, you know, you're, if you're a composer, you, you're kind of, one, you've got the London-based musicians who yeah. are, you know, probably you know, some of the best in the world, let's face it. And then you've got the sounds of, of the studio. Studio One has got a very unique sound. Studio Two's got another very unique sound. Um, so it's like the acoustics of the rooms, and then you've got the, the, the you know the engineers and the service they provide, and just the vibe they provide, and uh, the technical capabilities. And then you kind of mix that all up with just the sense of, of history. You know, th th this building has placed you know milestones of music history have happened here. So you kind of add that into the, into the fold, and you kind of get a very unique experience. And I think a lot of composers just. I mean, a lot of new composers come through the doors every year and, and they generally sort of come back again. They come back. I mean, I think Alexandre Desplasson is like 35th film here now. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you know, for, for some composers, it's like a family, I suppose. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a place where they feel comfortable and it's a good place to be. Well, I hope you enjoyed this Abbey Road special with Merrick Styles. Thanks for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast. If you did enjoy it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, and visit our Patreon page where there are loads of extras. And do listen to my Scala radio show. Tune in every Saturday afternoon at one for two hours of unmitigated musical joy with regular features like best end credits music, dialogue on soundtracks, the triple bill, and my favourite, atonal squonkfests. Keep watching the skies and stay safe. 